following audio is from a sermon series entitled Idols of the Heart. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from James 4, 13 to 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning again. Man, Joel nailed that worship and the liturgy. So if I have nothing helpful to say today, just go ahead and remember what we said in the liturgy and what we were singing in those, in those hymns and um, those songs, and you will be blessed by that. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Alex Raguel. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City. Uh, I typically attend the, the 1030 service. So those of you that have been coming to the 830 service probably have never met me. And this is actually the first time that I've preached all year. Um, so that's a little weird, but uh, time flies in, in 2020, as, as most of you know. Um, but you guys can be praying for me. It's the, it's the first time I've preached in a while. And this is the first time, of course, that I'm going to preach two times in one day, uh, which will be interesting. But Again, hoping that the Holy Spirit would do some, some good work. Uh, I just wanted to really quick, uh, up front, do something that potentially some of you guys are anticipating. I know since I haven't preached for a while, you guys have been missing out on all the jokes that I typically tell about Pastor Justin. Um, so, especially, right, since before they left to go on vacation, they released this information that they are having a new child coming very soon, right? Which is great. But if you've been paying attention at all, for the past four years, it seems, every joke that Pastor Justin has ever told has been about how many children my wife and I have. So again, I only thought it was natural just to come at him with some jokes about that as well, but I promise I thought and I thought I tried to come up with some jokes about that, and I definitely could not come up with anything, so he's safe this morning on that. Um, the reason that you probably thought I was going to do that is because when the deans get pregnant, what typically happens is the Arguellos get pregnant. But that's not the case this time. My wife is not pregnant. Shocking, I know, for some of you guys probably. But the reason that would happen is because, see, Pastor Justin and I used to work out together all the time. And we would work out in a, in a in competitive environment. So we, that tended to lead us to competing in really everything in life, including procreation. <laughs> but we no longer work out together anymore. So that's not happening. So that means that you don't have to expect another child from the Arguellos. At least that's what my wife tells me. You don't have to expect another child from the Aguelos. I do want to say I still work out. But I'm pretty sure Pastor Justin just goes out in his garage and stands by his equipment and takes pictures for Instagram. <laughs> nah, he works out. He also does Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so I should probably stop talking. He, he probably could take me out. Um, but he looks good, you know, especially since in the words of his son, Javin, isn't he like 40? Today we're in a sermon series that's titled Idols of the Heart, where we're looking at common idols that those of us that are God's children struggle with. Last week, Alex Tate, preaching for the first time here at Sacred City, started the, the sermon series off well as he kicked it off um, doing a, a sermon on the, the idol of power. If you haven't listened to that, definitely go back and listen to it. But today, we're going to be looking at the idol of control. And what a great time to be looking at something like that. Has anyone felt out of control yet in the year 2020? Has anyone felt in control at all in the year of 2020? 
Well, with everything that has happened in the year 2020, we maybe are thinking something like this, man, I can't wait until things get back to normal. I know I've said that once or twice in the past few months, but here's something to think about. What if they don't? What if things move further and further away from what we would consider normal? I think many of us would struggle. And I think we would struggle because what we see as normal, especially in America, are things being under control, not chaotic, not uncertain, not in a state that leads us to worry or fear. We like things much better when they're in control, amen? Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? The world was created by God, and he created it for order. He created it good, right, and perfect, all for his glory. There was no chaos in the beginning, no fear, no anxiety, no shame, no strife between humans, no selfishness or pride. But we probably know what happened. Humans messed it up which led to God laying a curse in this world, which allowed chaos to manifest. What we've been seeing so far in the year 2020 is a lot of chaos manifesting. But again, we should know the rest of the story, right? Christ has come. The gospel story tells us that Christ, with his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, has inaugurated a kingdom, a kingdom that is not chaotic, but very much ordered. And one day we will see this kingdom come in its fullness, and days like we are in today will be gone forever. But until then, that kingdom is slowly seeping into this world and changing this world as the message of the gospel, as the message of the kingdom is proclaimed and believed. So desiring order is not a bad thing. It's a Christian thing. Jesus even tells us to pray for it. He says, pray like this. Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. His will that is full of order and absolutely under control on earth as it is in heaven. So the problem for us is not desiring order, not desiring control. The problem comes when order, when no chaos, when control of this world or control of what happens to us in this world becomes the ultimate thing, when it's magnified above even Christ himself. And when that happens, it leads to destruction, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, even physically. It invites the opposite of what God wants for us and what he's bought for us. So that's what we're going to talk about today, that problem. So let me pray, and then we'll look at our passage to start out. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for what's already happened. Man, we just thank you that we get to be here today. Lord, there's so many people that are not able to gather together. There's so many churches who have uh, decided not to meet, Lord, but we get to come together with God's people and we get to look up to you and we get to worship the one true God. Lord, we get to be reminded of what we've been doing throughout the rest of the week. We've been worshiping other gods. We've been running to other things other than you but we get to be brought back into you. We get to be brought back into your story, Lord, and reminded how good it is to be there. So help us to do that this morning for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to James chapter four. And we're gonna look at this passage. Now, I wish I could say 
that this passage from James specifically speaks about the idol of the heart, of control, and gives us all the answer about this idol. But that's just not the case. And I want to be true to what I believe God's word is saying here instead of just reading something into the text just because we're in a topic. But what I do believe is that God's word here is giving us something that's helpful as we look at this topic of the idol of control. This passage is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot to unpack here. We see a challenge from James that first questions something his readers have said and then follows that up with telling them what a Christian should say instead. Let's start with what they said. Verse 13. Come now, or listen now. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James listeners, who would have been Christians, who were members of churches, much like us, must have had amongst them businessmen or merchants. Now these merchants would plan. They would map out their sales strategy. They would research where they should go to sell their goods, most likely determining where they would go based on what area would lead to the highest profits. Probably makes sense to us. One of the cool things about our church is we have many members here who are self-employed. Those who I would say have taken the cultural mandate seriously and started businesses with the desire to serve and bless people while making a living so that they can provide for their family and give to the church so that we here can do our mission of making disciples and planting churches and renewing the city. We also have people who are employees of companies who don't own those companies, but they still are producers in the fact that they have sales quotas to meet or some type of goal that, the, that they can help the company hit. So this is right up our alley, what James is talking to here. Those of us that are in that position, which I would be in that group, did you realize that there was a passage in the Bible that is speaking directly to your marketing planning or your sales strategy meeting that you have at the beginning of your year? Many of us probably fail to go into those meetings with a James 4 mindset. The reason we probably fail to do that is because we are more influenced by our culture than we have been maybe by our creator. And that is what James is challenging here. You see, these people he was writing to had given up a lot to follow Christ. When they came to Christ, they started to take on lives that were very countercultural. And a piece of that was sacrificing financial prosperity. But here we see James thought it necessary to write to them about their backsliding into what the culture was tempting them to do in this area. Sounds relevant. What does our culture tell us to do? Go make things happen. Hustle. I read one the other day. Hustle until your haters ask if you're hiring. Right? We're told that we're the masters of our own destinies. Here's one of my favorite. Until you want success like you want your next breath, you won't have it. <laughs> when I was looking at this, I was thinking, man, I wish we had a, an apostle like James, right, to be able to look at some of the stuff people post on social media. Maybe he could write us a letter and talk to us about that stuff. But I'm not saying that all of that is bad, right? I'm not here to say that. I think it's a little weird, but we probably can find biblical principles somewhere within that type of teaching. But what we're going to see James bring is what we're going to see James doing here is bringing a challenge to the thinking that it's all up to us 
when it comes to making a plan, when it comes to belief in that plan, and when it comes to taking action on that plan that's necessary for things to be executed. We don't see him telling us not to plan. We don't see him telling us not to take action. He knows those things are important. He's not even going to speak against confidence here. But instead in this passage, he's challenging the idea that we are in control of our own destinies. Look at how he continues. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He's saying, you're planning out your year? Really? How do you know you're even going to be alive tomorrow? What's his message here? He's not trying to put fear into them about death. He's trying to take their minds off of themselves and the control that they think they have and put their minds onto God and the control that James knows God has. He emphasizes this message by moving away from their lack of control of the future and towards the finiteness of their life. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Humbling section of scripture here, which is what one of James's goals, to humble us. But this definitely isn't something that, we sh- that shapes our lives, is it? We don't tend to think about the quickness of this life and how we are such a small part of the story that we are in. We probably forget that we're even in someone else's story at all. But again, James is challenging that way of thinking. Now, this passage seems to be speaking directly to these merchants, so it's fairly easy to apply to those of us who make a living in a similar way, but there is a principle here that James is laying out. We see this as we move into verse 15. He says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, James makes this much bigger than whether or not someone should plan to make some money throughout the year. The thrust behind this verse is that God is the one who decides if anything is going to happen. Whether we wake up in the morning, whether we have a productive day or not, whether we get married or stay single, whether Trump wins again, whether the pandemic ends, you name it, if it happens, God wills it. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. He controls everything. Now that maybe is a tough truth. And it probably brings up some questions. This sermon can't and will not answer those questions. It's not its purpose. But if you have any difficulty with that truth and you have questions on it, maybe something like this. If God wills everything, then does he will the evil things that happen in this world? If you have very difficult questions like that, the liturgy reader would love to meet with you downstairs, down here after the the service. Yeah. Seriously, here's the truth. God is in control. We are not. It's that simple. God is in control. We are not. 
If you have been an MC for a while, you probably have went through the four G's curriculum. One of the handles of the four G's is God is great, so we don't have to be what? In control. That's the truth. God's greatness is speaking to his total sovereignty, meaning that he is in total control. Now, that doesn't mean that we're robots or puppets. We are still secondary causal agents and still all make choices and are morally responsible for those choices. But those choices are compatible with God's sovereign decree. Again, if you have questions on that, Josh would love to meet with you down here. But that's what James is wanting us to see. And he's calling Christians to believe it in a way that it changes our thinking, which translates to changing what we're saying and what we're doing. So here it is. We as Christians don't think and say things like, I will make healthy choices for my whole life so that I can live to 100 years old in amazing health. We don't think and say things like, I will plan my day in such a way that leads to this amazing, peaceful day where my kids are just little angels and cause me no stress. We don't think and say things like, I'm going to wash my hands every five minutes, stay six feet away from everyone, and wear a mask so that I don't get the virus. Rather, as Christians, we are to remember James 4 on an everyday basis and think and say, if God wills, I am going to live and do this or that. If God wills, I am going to experience this or that. Last week, I think it was about last week, I was with a woman and she was giving me everything she had about how crazy it was that I wasn't wearing a mask. And I was just respectfully receiving from her as she was telling me how I didn't understand science, how I uh, didn't care about people, how I was putting everybody in danger. And again, I was just trying to respectfully listen to her and she was getting emotionally charged up and I didn't want to get emotionally charged up. So I sat and listened to her and then I kind of gave her some things to think about. But one of the things she said made me chuckle. She said, if everybody just wore a mask for two weeks, this thing would be gone. And I wasn't chuckling because I disagreed with her. I do disagree with her, but I wasn't wasn't chuckling because of what she said there. I was chuckling because I've been studying James 4 here, right? So I started to think about everything that people say on a daily basis, specifically in this time that we're in, right? Everybody has an opinion on if we just did this or that, this is what would happen. If we just did this, 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 and this, then this would be the result, right? That's the way we start to think, and I think Christians can fall into that, right? Start to think that way. So I was just thinking as she said that, I was like, if people actually believe that to be true, then really what should be said is we're going to wear, all wear masks for two weeks, and then if the Lord wills, this virus will go away. That's what James is calling us here, to think like that on an everyday basis. If the Lord wills, I'm going to live and experience this or that. So that's the passage, which gives us this truth that God is in absolute control But what's that have to do with the idol of control? Well, how do you respond to that passage? How do you respond to that truth? How do you respond to not being the master of your own destiny? Can we think about that? Do we like it? Would we rather it be that we were the ones that were in total control of what happens in our life? I'm guessing that that's probably how we function much of the time. 
Let's look at a few examples. If you lose control of how your kid is behaving at the store, what do you do? Screaming at the top of their lungs, pulling stuff off the the racks, throwing things out of the cart. What do we do? Freak out? Get anxious? Start screaming at them? Then we probably struggle with the idol of control. If you lose your job, or your business starts to fail, or your work environment starts to get frustrating, what do you do? Freak out? Get anxious? Shut down emotionally and relationally and let it start affecting other areas of your life? Then you probably struggle with the idol of control. How about your marriage? If it gets tough, if your spouse isn't being who you want them to be, or maybe who you thought they were going to be, how do you respond? Anger? Do you run away and isolate? Do you run to other relationships? Again, this has something to do with the idol of control. You see, I think what's happening in those situations is we are seeing them from our perspective instead of God's. We are looking at them through this lens that says God has nothing to do with this. When he would say, I have everything to do with this. And when we do that, we miss what he's trying to do or show us in that moment. Because all we can focus on is how whatever the issues are in front of us that seem to be out of control, our kids' behavior, the status of our career, the health of our relationships, whatever it is, all we focus on is how these issues are going to ruin our happiness, our peace, our order. Right? There's chaos here, which doesn't bring peace and happiness. It brings fear and unsettledness, anxiety and pain. And we don't want any of that. It doesn't matter if God has ordained it. We don't want any of that. I know this feeling very well. I've shared some of my story up here before, but for me, even something as simple as giving feedback, positive or negative, can trigger that type of response. There's baggage from my past that's built up to the point that where something as simple as telling someone that I thought they did a bad job or even a good job becomes this huge deal for me. Telling my kids or my employees that I'm disappointed in something they did or even proud of something they did, huge deal for me. Asking someone in MC why they missed last week or why they never pray when we're in the group, huge deal for me. So naturally, how these situations play out much of the time is I just don't do these things. I rarely give feedback. Drives my wife crazy. Drives maybe some of you crazy. But God has been gracious to me, and I wish I could say that he's radically changed me, and now feedback just flies out of me now. But that is not the case. Lord willing, that's how it will be one day. But some good news is that I'm at least starting to become aware of the damage that this can do. To me, of course, spiritually and emotionally, how it keeps me from being able to truly know God and experience the freedom that Christ has purchased for me, how it leads to suppressing of emotions and letting them eat me up inside or rarely being able to experience the joy of a positive emotion, but also to relationships. 
how it leads to people not truly knowing me and always having to guess what the heck I'm thinking. Steve and Sarah Ott joined our missional community about a year ago. Since then, Steve and I have grown in our relationship. He's one of the primary people who are helping me to see this and process all of this. But he told me one day, man, before I got to know you, I thought you were just this stone-cold dude. Just a mean mugger, he thought. Maybe some of you have thought the same thing. I hear that I'm tough to read. That people have no idea what I'm thinking about them when they interact with me which can make people wonder how much I really care to interact with them. Well, that's not, what I want. that's not the way I want it to be. And I'm sorry if that's been your experience when you've interacted with me. And it's crazy for me to think about it, how much damage can come from just the struggle I have with giving feedback. Why do I share that with you? Well, one, this is me stepping out in faith and trying, at least trying to be transparent so that I can try to model what I'm attempting to call you to, to today, which is trusting that God is better than our control. Transparency doesn't excite me. Trust me, I didn't want to share any of that with you, and now it's even going to be on the internet. <laughs> but that's what repentance looks like. That's at least a part of what repentance looks like. But the other reason I share that with you is because I want us to see the bigness or the seriousness of having an idol in your life. I want us to see that having this idol of control isn't just something that affects only you. It isn't just something that we can see as something small, like a pet peeve that our spouse doesn't like about us. It's a sin against God, and it leads to sin against others. I just finished a book called The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses. And in it, the author says this. I think they have the quote that they can put up here. False worship is a serious sin. It is no accident that the prohibition of false worship comes first in the Ten Commandments. It comes first because false worship is a most grievous sin. The withdrawal of proper allegiance to the true God and the offering of allegiance to a false God, control in this case, is the most radical possible disruption of the root of, every, of our responsibility to God. It attacks the root of what human beings are intended to be, and in the long run, it affects every aspect of human life. Having idols in our life is a serious thing, no matter how small we think they may be. This feedback thing for me is a serious thing. It's a sign of a control issue. Why can't I give feedback? Because in my mind, when these situations come up that warrant giving feedback, I start to think about all of the things that I can't control. I can't control how exposed I may become in these situations. And if I get exposed, then people may see how much I don't meet the standard, and that's not okay with me. I can't control the person's response. Is it going to bring tension? Are they going to start crying? Which I would be really uncomfortable with. Are they going to think I'm weird and less than what I want them to think of me? This is all stuff that just goes through my mind every time I'm in a position of giving feedback. The most important thing to me in these situations is not what's good for the person in front of me. It's not what's glorifying to God and representative of Christ. The most important thing to me is avoiding uncertainty. 
avoiding the chaos that feedback might invite. Because here it is, I think that controlling the situation is what's best for me. I think it's what I need. I think that's where my happiness lies. Because happiness for me means no chaos, no uncertainty, no anxiety. And since I believe that, I'm willing, again, to allow all of those damaging effects that, went, that we went through happen. I'm willing to miss whatever God has for me in that situation and for the other person. And I'm willing to break the very first commandment God ever gave us. Do we see the danger? I hope we do, because idol worship is wicked. And God hates it. I wish I had the time to go through some of the consequences of false worship that we see God bring in the Old Testament. But I will leave that to you and encourage you to do that study to hopefully build up our understanding of how serious this is. And I would also encourage you to do the investigative work that I've done on myself to see how this idol plays out for you. Don't doubt that it does in some way. Some of us probably already see it. Maybe the nines in the room resonate with my issue. But if not, do some good heart work. Ask God how it's there so that you can have this awareness and start the fight. That would be the first step in going to war with it. But what do we do beyond that? How do we fight this idol? Right, it's a good step, but not enough to just be aware of the idol and to confess that it's there. So how do we fight it? Let's close with that answer. The answer is we look to truth. And when I say truth, I think we can look to truth on multiple levels here. First, let's remember verse 14. What is your life? Let's remember that our life, especially this earthly life that we are in, is minuscule compared to God and the redemptive story that we are in. Instead of taking our lives so seriously and what we want to do and want to accomplish and the peace that we want to have, all of which requires that we take control, let's fight with humility to be faithful as just a character in God's story. Second, let's remember verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. God is in control, we are not. Since he is the one in the control room of heaven, let us remember that what happens in our lives, even the little things, are from him. And so there's something in them that he wants us to see. This should take some weight off, right? When we can rightly believe that God is in control and we are not, we give up this weight that we put on ourselves, which really is exhausting, so that we can take on the weight that God puts on us, which brings us rest. And lastly, the best news of all. It's right to believe that we are vapors in the wind, that we are not in control, and there's good that comes from us believing those two things. But those two things can still be scary if left alone. But they're not left alone. We are not left alone. God not only is in total control of this world, in total control of your life, but the Bible says that whatever comes into your life, even if it feels out of control, it's all working together for good for those who are called according to God's purposes. Is that not good news? The sovereign king of the universe, the one who created this world and sustains it every single day, 
the one who authored the story that we are in and gave it the happiest ending that could ever be written, is mindful of you. He's for you. I know it doesn't feel like that all the time. I know in 2020 it's probably felt like that very rarely. And that's why we run to idols like control. But it's true. And it's not true because we're awesome. It's not true because we deserve it. It's not true because we've the ones that have met the standard. It's true because of Christ, who showed his love for us, and that while we were still idol worshipers, he died for us, and then he rose for us, and now he's still with us. Believe that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you are the one that is in total control. I don't think we would have to think very long how much crazier this world would be if we were the ones in control, if we were the ones in the throne room of heaven, if we were the ones that were in absolute control of everything that happened in our lives and everybody else's lives. Lord, so we're thankful that we don't have to do that. But that's hard for us to believe. When we start to think about our lives and we start to think about how they function, all of the responsibilities that we have, we just want to grab hold of control of every single thing that's there. So, Father, I pray that you would help us there. I pray that you would help us to relinquish those reins, that we would give that up to you. Father, and that we would remember that if we do that, if we step out in faith and give over control to you, that you are a good God. That you're not a God who's just going to bring all the bad things that we can think of into our life. Even in the little moments, Lord, when we think that there's nothing but chaos and nothing but uncertainty and nothing but anxiety, help us to remember how good of a God you are. Help us to remember how good of a truth it is that you are the one that's in control. You are the one that decides what happens in our life. We rest in you this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.